Please remain standing in the reading of the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. Again, God's holy word, the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, the first 10 verses, God's word. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. As far as the reading of God's will, may bless it to us. Let's pray. So one of the benefits of our technology is that you can take virtual tours. Now, these may not be as good as the real thing, but they allow you to view some of the wonders of the world that you otherwise wouldn't be able to see, whether it's a museum, some grand mansion, or now even Mars, the video, the pictures, and the narration transport you so that you feel up close. And these are particularly nice for places that you can't afford to travel to or where you're not permitted to go. These are the off-limits, the high-security locations, like sections in the White House, restricted laboratories, or vaults of priceless treasures. The public is forbidden from entering, but there is a virtual tour. Well, this type of tour is actually not modern at all, for we can find them in the Bible. Now, there are no pictures or videos, but Scripture supplies us with literary tours of some spectacular locations, which is what Hebrews gives us in our passage today. Yes, he shows us around behind locked doors so that we might rejoice in the keys that Christ alone has granted us. So at the end of the last chapter, by the an extensive quote of, from Jeremiah, the superior blessings of the new covenant were spread out before us to marvel at. Like a fine dining restaurant, we got to feast with our eyes and our souls by faith on the rich fare of our Lord Jesus. Yet there are more courses in this comparison between the first covenant and the second, the old and the new. Now, even though the old covenant is decrepit and soon to pass away, the author wants to give us a full autopsy of its cadaver, 
Now, we're not sure, but it seems as if the congregation of this letter is having a hard time letting go. They're still in the denial stage of grief. The old covenant just can't be dead. And thus, the author keeps the Sinai covenant under the microscope for us. In this way, we can appreciate more fully the betterness of the new and not be enticed to go back to the old. And to this end, he zeroes in on a particular part of the larger Mosaic covenant, namely its cultic regulations. Now, it goes without saying that the Mosaic was massive and complex, but these laws governing worship were the cardiac pump that kept the rest alive. Now, such cultic laws included the duties of sacrifice, purity, the priesthood, the holy calendar, and dietary rules. The first covenant also had an earthly holy shrine, the tabernacle, and later the temple. Thus, the long quote from Jeremiah expressed how the old covenant was broken, but it didn't touch on these matters. And so the author deals with them on his own. And he starts with the holy tent itself. When the tabernacle tent was set up, after all the parts were fashioned and it was assembled as one whole building, the sanctuary tent was divided into two sections. The first, larger section, was called the holy place, or the sanctum. And in this first room, there was the lampstand and the table of showbread, or table with the showbread on it. This is basically our mini-tour of the holy place. Now, upon first impression, this feels like a bare-bones tour. And yet, the mere mention of these pieces of furniture is anything but. For the Old Testament saturated this furniture with symbolism and theology, and tradition rightly held them in the highest esteem. To even say their name required the hushed tones of awe and respect. It's kind of like, it's kind of like saying your friend drives a Rolls Royce. You can't say this nonchalantly, but you must voice it with, with your voice dressed up. A Rolls Royce. Well, likewise in the sanctum was the lampstand, the menorah, which is, which wasn't just an exquisite piece of art, a sort of crown jewel, but it was also a holy symbol of God's redemptive plan. For the menorah was a seven-branched lamp decorated with gold, flowers, and leaves. It had seven lamps, and each lamp had seven wicks for a total of 49 lights. Now, as a tree, the menorah was a stylized tree of life, hearkening back to the garden. And with its seven times seven lights, it represented the light of God's face shining upon his people. And just as the pillar of fire of God's glory hovered over Sinai and then guided Israel in the wilderness at night, so also the light of the menorah burned with the splendor of God's own presence amid his people. Indeed, this menorah sat on the south side of the sanctum, and just opposite on the north side was the showbread upon the table. Now, this holy bread consisted of 12 loaves, one for each tribe of God's people. 
Next to the bread were libation bowls of beer, which represented a meal, a communion dinner between the Lord and his people. In fact, the literal name for the 12 loaves was the face bread because it sat up on the table in front of God's face, the shining lights of the menorah. The menorah glory of God illumined the loaves of the people in a life-giving power and sweet communion. And all of this within the holy place as a slice of heaven on earth. Thus this theology in pictorial form, this first part of the sanctuary, restored and preserved a piece of Eden, and it was a foretaste of the world to come. This holy room and its sacred furniture set before Israel the very realities of heaven. Hence, this is no meager mini-tour, but it's packed with vibrant truths to make our souls salivate for God and his heaven. And this is just the first room. Behind this larger sacred space was a smaller room with an even greater amperage of holiness, the Holy of Holies. And in order to enter the Holy of Holies, you had to pass through another curtain, the veil, which was embroidered with golden cherubim as gatekeepers to the throne room. If the sanctum pointed to heaven, the Holy of Holies was the Lord's own chamber of splendor. And so its furniture was appropriately glorious. First, there was the golden altar of incense. Now, the author puts this incense altar here for its function more than its location. Technically, this altar was actually inside the sanctum, just in front of the veil and the ark. And yet the incense altar served the Holy of Holies. Namely, incense was was burned on the altar to create a thick smoke that would then fill the most holy place. And such a dense cloud of smoke represented God's pillar of cloud. Thus, by burning incense during the day, the glory cloud filled God's throne room and hovered over the ark to depict the Lord of glory enthroned upon the cherubim. Thus, the perfumed smoke led one to the ark itself, which was God's portable throne. Its sanctity was head and shoulders above all the other holy pieces of furniture. And the radiant grandeur of the Lord, as you know, fills the whole earth. No building or room can hold or contain the eternal beauty of our Lord. And yet... In his wonderful kindness, the Lord willingly came down and made his presence manifest over the ark. The very thought melts our hearts with wonder and terror. The very lifeblood of the covenant pumped and flowed from the ark to all the other extremities of the covenant. Hence, inside the ark were the emblems of the relationship. First, there was the jar of manna, which wasn't merely a memorial of the desert wanderings. Instead, the manna taught an essential truth that is expressed in Deuteronomy 8, namely that humans do not live by bread alone, but by the word of God. 
the jar of miracle bread in the ark laid the foundational truth that Israel lived by God and his word. Second, there was Aaron's dead staff that blossomed with ripe almonds like a living tree. This confirmed by a supernatural wonder that Aaron and his sons were alone priests to God. The Aaronic priesthood was part of the very DNA of the Mosaic Covenant and its holy sanctuary. Third, and finally, in the golden box, the two tablets of the covenant were vouchsafed. Now, of course, these stone tablets were the covenantal documents, which are the constitution of God's holy kingdom. Thus, under the feet of the Lord were the constitutional terms that define the people's relationship with God and the sanctions that prophesied of their future with the Lord. And these three items, then, in the ark are like spiritual diamonds that outstrip any treasure that this creation has to offer. And then, like a cherry on top, the ark's lid was flanked by golden cherubim. The angelic guardians of heaven were the steeds upon which God rode. Moreover, the cherubim were the duet of unending music to laud and magnify the Lord in everlasting praise. Thus, once again, the architecture of the tabernacle whisks us up into heaven. This august tour of the sanctuary isn't just a journey then to some ancient wonder of the world, but it's but by its, theo- its theology and brilliant imagery prophetically beams our hearts up to the age to come and our chief end of glorifying God forever. It echoes the paradise lost of Eden and it is a beacon to the greater glory that lies ahead. And the author spun this rhapsody of holy magnificence even without going into detail. He carried our hearts up into heaven to God himself and he did it in prose. What a virtual tour. We got to walk through an ancient artifact and we ended up with the dust of heaven upon our feet. But as you know, any tour is not complete without a good guide. The narrator fills in what the pictures cannot communicate on their own. Thus, with the images of the tabernacle before us, now we're told the rules of this sanctuary. And he summarizes the regulations according to their respective rooms. Up first, then, is the sanctum or the holy place. And into this first section of the tabernacle, the priests regularly entered in order to perform their ritual duties. Now, this is a plump line that needs to be teased out. For one, this was the work of the priests, plural. Remember that there was only one high priest, but many normal priests. Now, all were sons of Aaron, but just one was crowned the high priest. Well, the duties of the sanctuary uh, or the sanctum, <clears throat> excuse me, well, the duties of the, uh, the sanctum were carried out by these normal priests. Next, the service was regular, which meant daily, even every morning and evening. Now, in the morning, the priest entered to burn incense on the golden altar. 
Then in the evening, he went back to trim the wicks and to light the menorah, which only burned through the night. Then on the Sabbath, the priest had to change the face bread with new bread. And these chores were a perpetual obligation for both the priests and the people. Only the priest could enter the holy place, but he could never be empty-handed. He had to be loaded with sacred incense, pure oil, and proper bread, which was supplied by the people. The people paid for and brought the spices, the oil, and the flour, and then the priest prepared them and entered twice daily to offer them up. And these constant rituals were an absolute condition to keep God near. If these daily duties went undone, then God would depart from his sanctuary in wrath and rejection. Heavy was the obligation of obedience by priest and people to keep the replica of heaven on earth in the tabernacle. Moreover, it was the priest alone who could enter. The people were strictly forbidden upon pain of death from going inside. They paid for the offerings, but the people could never see the menorah. Their noses never smelled the holy incense. The sanctum was closed and locked to the public. No entrance, no touch, not even a glimpse. Your average ancient Hebrew was in no better position than we are. The lay Israelite was told what was inside the tent, but he could not enjoy a physical tour of it. There were not even pictures or videos of the holy furniture, but only the word to describe it. The heavenly imagery was barred and locked away from the people. They heard about it, but they could not enter. And the regulations of the second section are similar, but even more restrictive. Now, entrance into Holy of Holies was not a daily chore, but it was an annual one. Only one day a year did a human step inside the Holy of Holies, and the other 364 days, it just grew dust and spider webs. Then, it could only be the high priest who entered. The normal priests were forbidden. And when the high priest got ready, there was an entrance fee. The price had to be paid to pass through the cherubim veil, which was blood, even two types of blood. Aaron held, held bull blood for his own sins and goat blood for the people's iniquities. The holy, holy of holies was filled with smoke so that Aaron couldn't see the ark, and then he went in to sprinkle the blood seven times. Thus the veil was a locked door, like one of those old doors in a dusty mansion with 15 different locks, deadbolts, and chains. Thus Aaron had a janitor key ring, and the right keys included the right day, the proper person, the exact clothes, the correct smoke, and the most important, the blood key. The cost, the costly price and the purifying power of blood alone opened the door into God's heavenly chamber. Indeed, the main takeaway that the author wants to emphasize from these regulations 
is that the tabernacle was closed. As he says, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place was not open. And once again, we see the special role of the Spirit, both in fabricating the tabernacle and inspiring the text of Exodus about the tabernacle. Now, we may find the chapters of Exodus about the tabernacle to be dull, but it is the literary product of the Spirit, which makes it true and relevant. And by all these laws, these closed curtains, and exclusive priestly duties, the Spirit declares to you, you shall not pass. No entrance for you, and we are intended to feel the angst in this. For we have been wooed by all the heavenly and covenantal beauty in the sanctum. We are filled with awe about the ark and the cherubim. The everlasting delights of God are dangled before us in this description of the holy places. But then our hand is slapped and the door is shut in our face. You cannot enter, no touching, no smelling, and no seeing. If you peek, you die. The glories of heaven and our God are whispered in our ear only for the door to be locked and barred to us. We are left outside wishing to be inside, but scared to death to try. And this dynamic of locked doors is symbolic of this present age. By it, the Spirit is instructing us on the current evil age. Now, of course, this present age inherently contrasts with the age to come. This sets across from one another earth versus heaven. It did say in verse 1 here that the tabernacle was the earthly sanctuary. All the imagery of its holy furniture pictured heaven, but itself, it was quite terrestrial. And and like this, and the likeness then between the tabernacle and the present age reveals its inability to reach heaven. The earthly character of this age is incompatible with the glory of heaven. To use Pauline language, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Now, Hebrews will tease out for us more fully this idea in the rest of the chapter. But a key tenet of it is mentioned here. Namely, the sacrifices of the old covenant couldn't perfect the conscience of the worshiper. That sprinkled animal blood could not make holy our conscience. Now, by conscience, he's referring to our awareness of our sin, our consciousness of our guilt, and our feeling of shame. Our consciousness tells us that we are wretched sinners and that we deserve the most severe punishment. Now, as sinners, we try to suppress our conscience. We dull it, we dilute it, we silence it. We get it intoxicated on stubborn pride. Our conscience is like a federal penitentiary. It's full of murderers insisting that they are innocent. In short, though, conscience is another way to refer to our hearts that was central to the Jeremiah passage. The conscience is part of our heart. 
It is that immaterial part of our being, the center of our thinking, our emotions, and will. If our, if our sinful hearts and our depraved consciences, it's these that make us sinners. And the sacrifices of old were incapable of getting at the heart. That animal blood could not get inside of us to purify our conscience. Our conscience is riddled with guilt. It's infected with shame. Depravity has rottened our conscience through and through. And for a cure, our conscience of our heart requires forgiveness. To purge away that guilt, it needs the balm of propitiation to free us from punishment, to make God forget our transgressions. And our hearts need renewing grace to be made new, fresh, reborn. But the old covenant regulations were unable to provide such internal and spiritual improvements. As it says, the old covenant rites dealt merely with food, drink, and various washings. They regulated bodily purity, the ritual purity of externals. Now, sure, these external rites were symbolic of the internal, but being ineffectual, they remained just symbols. As Jeremiah mentioned, the Old Testament sacrifices and rituals didn't accomplish forgiveness or forgetfulness. The sprinkled blood and the washings of the body were incapable of reaching into our souls to give us a new heart. Thus, the beauties of the tabernacle showcase the highest good of heaven, of us being near to God. But then they shut the door of heaven to us, and by its ineffectual rites, it keeps us outside with an evil conscience. The regulations of the sanctuary barred the way for us sinners to enter the celestial realm of the Lord. And it had no keys to open the way for us. Thus, what's a person to do? It almost seems cruel. The Spirit woos us with the paradise of heaven only to deny us access. The tabernacle is a series of locked gates, of sealed curtains, and it doesn't even have the kings, the keys to fling open the doors for us. This would be an occasion for despair if the tabernacle was all there was, then who could be saved? No one. And yet the sanctuary of old was not the real deal. It was a replica of the genuine article. Thus the ritual regulations of the tabernacle were confined to a distinct period. These laws were imposed only for a season until the time of Reformation came. The doors of heaven were shut until the Reformation age dawned and flung them open. And this Reformation period did not wait for a German monk of the 16th century, but it burst forth in the coming forth of Jesus. Yes, the Son of God, the true priest after Melchizedek, was the bringer of the age of Reformation. For by his death, he earned forgiveness for you, he bore all your condemnation against you, and by his labors in the Spirit, Jesus makes your heart 
new. Therefore, as a gift of God's grace and love, Jesus came with all the keys of heaven for you. His righteousness merited a wide open door into the glories of the age to come. By his atoning work, Jesus took down all those barriers and those warning signs for us. The menorah light of God's face, the everlasting feast of communion with the Lord, and the sweet aroma of the Father's throne, these are yours freely by the grace of Christ. Indeed, the mercy of Christ here gives you a virtual tour of heaven, And then it says in love, Welcome, beloved of the Lord. Come in and enter your Sabbath rest. For the love of Christ has reserved for you a seat at the great supper of the Lamb. Yes, these blessings are yours now spiritually, and they will be yours forever in glory. Thus may we trust and praise Christ who has opened all the doors for us as a gift of love and mercy. And then, may Jesus come quickly. Amen. Let's pray.